Smith's raid on the Army commissary wagons was a stunning victory for the Latter-day Saints in the conflict we remember as the Utah War. But the United States government was quick to respond. On today's episode, we explore how the conflict quickly escalated to what may have been the most dangerous moment in the history of the Latter-day Saints. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. Before Lot Smith's raid on the wagon supplies, conventional wisdom in the government and the nation seemed to be that talk of the Latter-day Saints actually fighting the army was just that, talk. General William McClellan, who would later command the Union Army of the Potomac in the American Civil War, wrote that, It will require but little effort on our part to dissipate these Mormon fanatics. I do not think Brother Brigham will fight. But I think if he does fight, he will be soundly whipped. The Mormons, I'll wager, to be as cowardly a lot of cattle thieves as ever went unhung. McClellan laughed that the Latter-day Saints were a collection of heathenish vagabonds. But little Mac was hardly alone in dismissing any real concern over the escalating conflict. Before learning about Lot Smith's raid, the New York Herald ran an editorial waving off any silly concerns that the Latter-day Saints might actually fight. Brother Brigham may indulge in big talk before the Saints in the Bowery, and Brother Kimball may make them laugh by telling them that his wives are strong and numerous enough to drive out Uncle Sam's troops. But there is no real intention on the part of the Mormons to offer any open resistance to the expedition. The saints may talk, but they won't fight. But when it finally reached the states, news of Lot Smith's raid on the supply trains shocked the country. Overnight, the army lost roughly half of its supplies. Johnston and his troops would spend a hungry, freezing winter on half rations in the ashes of what once had been Fort Bridger, which had also been burned by the Nauvoo Legion to deny shelter to Johnston's troops. But neither Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston nor his soldiers were cowed. Now made hungrier, colder, and wiser by the Latter-day Saints, the army learned its lesson. Johnston immediately consolidated his force, set up a winter camp, and set out aggressive perimeter patrols and picket posts to protect against future raids. On the 20th of January, 1858, Johnston fumed in a dispatch to his superiors. In view of the treasonable temper and feelings now pervading the leaders and a greater portion of the Mormons, I think that neither honor nor the dignity of the government would allow the slightest concession being made to them. If they desire combat, I believe it is for the interest of the government that they shall have the opportunity. General William Harney went even further, recommending that the people of Utah all be placed under martial law. Also with Johnston at the camp was the newly appointed federal judge for Utah, Delana Eccles. He now saw a chance to flex his power. In a makeshift cabin at the army camp, he assembled a grand jury and returned an indictment against church leaders for treason. We, the grand jurors of the United States of America, upon oath present that Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, Daniel H. Wells, John Taylor, George D. Grant, Lot Smith, Porter Rockwell, William Hickman, Dan Jones, Robert Burton, James Ferguson, and Ephraim Hanks 
with a great multitude of persons, owing allegiance to the United States, but wickedly devising to incite rebellion and war, did array themselves in a warlike and hostile manner, and set fire to and burn commissary stores belonging to the United States, and did oppose the march of the army of the United States, thereby levying war against the United States. This treason indictment raised the stakes of the conflict considerably. The punishment for treason was death by hanging, and the army commanders, Johnston, Harney, McClellan, and William Tecumseh Sherman, all seemed to long for actual fighting against the Latter-day Saints. But they were not alone. Among the Latter-day Saints, there was also a growing desire in some to march out against the enemy and match them ball for ball. Private George Watts wrote to his wife from Echo Canyon, I presume my home is as dear to me and your sweet society as much as a wife's society can possibly be. It is to defend such endearments that I am here and feel a longing desire to meet the enemy face to face and with deadly weapons try the contest. Nauvoo Legion's second lieutenant, James Henry Martineau, felt disappointed at thinking the growing conflict may resolve itself peacefully instead of escalating to battle. He wrote in a letter home, The thought of retreating without a fight and killing some of these infernal scoundrels casts a, a damper on my spirit. Charles Penrose, then serving as a missionary in Liverpool, wrote in his journal, the troops must by this time be close. I wish I was in the mountains with the boys. My blood boils furiously at the repeated injuries put upon the saints, and my heart beats with high desire to fight with my brethren in the sacred cause. And yet, despite this fighting spirit, things were far from promising for the Latter-day Saints. Throughout the winter of 1857 to 1858, their situation became all the more precarious. From the West, they faced the prospect that the administration would raise an army of ill-disciplined volunteers from California, many of whom hated the Latter-day Saints and burned to avenge the September 1857 murders of the Baker-Francher wagon train outside Cedar City. And William Tecumseh Sherman, who would later become famous in the American Civil War for his March from Atlanta to the Sea, quickly booked passage on a ship to California, hoping to command just such an expedition. From the south, the Latter-day Saints faced the intrepid Captain Randolph Marcy, who had led a contingent of Johnston's army through a grueling winter march from the plains of Wyoming to Santa Fe, New Mexico, to get more supplies and possibly find another way into the Salt Lake Valley. The Latter-day Saints had always considered the arid, red rock deserts of southern Utah to be impassable, and yet it seemed that Marcy was getting closer to finding a way through. If he did, an army contingent could simply bypass the defenses the Latter-day Saints had set up in Echo Canyon and invade from the south. From the north, the native tribes started turning against them. While their attention was on Johnston's army to the east, Indians raided a large number of cattle and livestock from the western part of Tooele. This was a severe blow to church leaders and the Nauvoo Legion, who thought of the native tribes as allies in the conflict with the United States. But what alarmed them more was learning that the stolen cattle were being taken in a wide northern route 
to be sold to Johnston's army. From within, the Latter-day Saints faced growing disciplinary problems in the Nauvoo Legion. AWOL's dereliction of duty and drunkenness among the Latter-day Saint soldiers was becoming so bad that Brigham Young wrote to Hugh Moon, one of Salt Lake City's liquor merchants, We have seen as much drunkenness about our streets as we care to, and all acknowledge getting their liquor at Moon's Still. I write to request that you not sell any more whiskey or alcohol, no matter who may call upon you to purchase. And in case the plea is made that someone will die unless liquor can be had, be pleased to tell them to first call upon me and get an order for the coffin for liquor they cannot have. Yet among the American public, people seem to realize for the first time that the Utah campaign may trigger an actual war. The New York Herald sheepishly admitted, we now see that Brigham Young is in earnest Newspapers printed dire predictions of what this could mean. The Illinois newspaper, The Weekly Courier, printed an interview with an unnamed Mormon as saying, Brigham Young threatens, in case the president does not back out, that he will send his destroying angels on a mission of incineration to burn the cities of St. Louis, Chicago, New York, and even the capital of the United States. These cities and many others are to be fired simultaneously. The Philadelphia Standard wrote that the Mormons are making great preparations for defending all the passes to the valley and are manufacturing small cannons with percussion locks and telescope sights that could fire a cannonball a mile and a half with the accuracy of a rifle at 120 yards. And it was not only the American public that started to dread the Latter-day Saints. Signs of panic began to show in the governments of Great Britain and Russia, who were afraid the Latter-day Saints may once again pack up, abandon their homes and cities, and embark on another epic pioneer trek, this time into their territories on the Pacific coast. Sir William Napier, Britain's minister to Washington, penned a letter home, warning of this possibility. Their previous immigration from Nauvoo to the Salt Desert proves that they are capable of such a feat, however impossible it may seem. The Russian minister to Washington wrote a letter to the Russian foreign minister, Prince Alexander Gorkachev, summarizing his interview with James Buchanan about the possibility that the Latter-day Saints may pack up and march into Alaska, then owned by Tsarist Russia. I asked him whether the Mormons will resort to us as conquerors or as peaceful colonists. Ah, it is for you, he said, to settle that question. As for us, we shall be happy to be rid of them. While an unquestionable military success, Lot Smith's raids started a dangerous escalation of the conflict, with church leaders now under indictment for treason and facing the grim prospect of death by hanging. On all sides, discipline began to break down. At the same time, common soldiers to general officers seemed desperate for battle. Fear began to spread across the American public and to nations overseas. It was in this critical hour, when the nation seemed on the verge of a bloodbath, that Colonel Thomas L. Kane of Pennsylvania stepped forward. On our next episode, we will remember the greatest hero of the Utah War, Colonel Kane, abolitionist, philanthropist, combat-wounded hero of the Civil War, 
and faithful friend to the Latter-day Saints. This is Adventures in Mormon History. For the material and sources in this season, we owe a special thanks to Utah War historian Bill McKinnon. His excellent two-volume set, At Swords Point, the documentary history of the Utah War, is available on Amazon and Google Books. A link to these and other sources can be found in the show notes. I'm your host, Nate Olson.